we want to turn our attention to Scripture this morning. Our first passage is from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Exodus, chapter 30, the first 10 verses. It's sort of an unusual reading in that it's just directions, instructions uh, for building a particular piece of furniture that'll be in the tabernacle. Uh, It deals with the particular piece of furniture we want to focus on today, the golden altar. Listen here to God's Word. God moreover said to, to Moses, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. It shall be square and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering, or meal offering, you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. You shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Amen. We have a second Old Testament text. It's from Jeremiah chapter 6. We'll read verses 14 through 19, I think, something like that. Jeremiah lived in a very decadent age, much like the age in which we live. There's Carol Menninger here. God bless you. Good to see you. You're on my prayer list today. So we'll give thanks, move from from intercession to Thanksgiving. Uh, Jeremiah lived in an age much like ours. And, uh, you know, things just went from bad to worse. And he identifies, well, God speaking through him, identifies some of the issues. And if this doesn't resonate with us, you know, in terms of, you know, we're, we're coming up on a day of prayer and fasting. We want to pray for our land. Well, man, this, you get lots of insights right here from, from what we're going to read here from Jeremiah 6. So listen here to God's word. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abominations they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, at the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not walk. Listen, therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. 
Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. Amen. And then our primary text today is Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Various trumpets have been sounding. This is the sixth trumpet. Listen here to God's word. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released, so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates like the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we bow before you today. We need your mercy and grace among us. Oh, Lord, help us, we ask. We desire to know you more fully. We desire to follow you more faithfully. We believe all that comes from your Word and the things which you show us and teach us and tell us there. So, Lord, tune our hearts and tune our minds to hear your word. May you speak into our lives redemptively in a way that sanctifies us and makes us your own. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and the Lord of all. Amen. Here's the main point of what we want to say today that you need to hear in light of all the other things that will be said, but here's the main point. God is a God of mercy. We need to know that. God is a God of mercy. He knows who we are. He's aware that we're but flesh. In fact, Psalm 103, verse 14, which Herb's going to put up there right now, uh, says that very thing. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. That's why God is a God of mercy. Uh, we, we need to know that. We need to have that. We need to be convinced of that. And such is the case. Always keep that in the forefront of your minds. You know, uh, we have lots of different ways in which uh, people respond to music. And uh, one of the major complaints that I've had and some other people have had over the years is, is repetitious songs. You're saying, Seven words 11 times is what that always said. Well, you know, 
sometimes that's a very bad complaint to make. Uh, you know, there's a place for repetition where God delights in it, enjoins it, and makes us do it. So in Psalm 136, uh, you should read it sometime. It's a recounting of all the things, but go ahead, put up there Psalm 136, the thing I have there. For his loving kindness, his mercy is everlasting. In Psalm 136, that phrase is repeated 26 times. It's in every verse. There's 26 verses in that psalm. Every verse ends with, His mercy is everlasting. His mercy is everlasting. His loving kindness is forever. In, in phrases like that. I think God tells us that because we need to hear it. <clears throat> we need to know it. There are come points in our lives where we wonder, have I gone beyond the mercy of God? And we can forget God's mercy. I'm saying don't, especially in light of today's text from Revelation. <clears throat> now, let's start with our text from, from Exodus. <clears throat> it's about the golden altar. It gives a concise description of it. It's small, comparatively speaking, compared to all the other pieces of of uh, furniture in the tabernacle that God has Moses build out in the wilderness there, and they'll take into the, eventually to Shiloh and other places. It's small, it's three feet tall. So it's just, it's, I, it's not as tall as our communion table. I don't think that's three feet up there. Uh, it's three feet tall. It's a foot and a half square. All right, each side is a foot and a half. A, Cubit, it says here. We all know what it, remember we memorized Psalm or Isaiah 40. Uh, he, he, he measures the, he set out the space in, in half a cubit, has measured it by that. We said a half a cubit is nine inches. A full cubit is 18 inches. That's a foot and a half. Two cubits is 36 inches, which is three feet. So that, that we know what the size of that was. And all of it is overlaid with pure gold. Uh, it says, even the horns of the altar, the, the horns on its four square sides are just little, like little protuberances that stick up, and they signify strength. All throughout the scriptures, that's what horn stands for. And all of it's covered with gold. That means this is most precious in the sight of God. He values this very, very much, and we should value it as well. Now, notice where it was placed. It's placed right before the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy place has, is separate, again, from the place where the brazen altar was, out there where sin offerings were done. Uh, so it's in the holy place, but it's right next to the veil where behind that is the holy of holies. And as the priest comes in day by day, in the morning and in the evening, and offers incense there, the smoke of that goes up, and it'll waft across into the holy of holies as well. Uh, one day a year, the priest, we read about it here, the priest uh, on the Day of Atonement takes blood, it's been sacrificed on the brazen altar of the bull or whatever's there, and puts it on each horn of the altar and prays and asks for God to have mercy on his people, to make atonement for them. That's what that bull stood for. Now, we all know that that represents and stands for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our sacrificial offering. It's, we, we sang about it this morning. It's his blood 
that atones for our sins. It's his blood that satisfied the wrath of God. It's his blood that brings the mercy of God toward us, toward the people of God. And so uh, they would, on the Day of Atonement, they would do that. Then every day of the year, the priest would come in, wouldn't bring another offering or anything. He'd bring in sweet incense. And in the morning and in the evening, as he's trimming the lamps, he put on that golden altar, and that incense would go up. And it would waft into the, toward where the Ark of the Covenant is. <clears throat> do you remember what the Ark of the Covenant contains? Anyone remember? Three, three objects are supposed to be in there. What, what are those three things? The Ten Commandments, right? The stones on which uh, the Lord wrote with his own finger, the Ten Commandments, they're in there. Uh, there's a jar of manna in there, a golden jar of manna in there. And what else? Aaron's rod that budded. Exactly right. And those three things remind us of a couple of things, several things. One, that God's law, his truth is what he says to be done and not to be done in the Ten Commandments is forever true. The other is that God makes provision for his people. He gives us manna. When we have exhausted all of our resources, God provides for us. And then Aaron's rod that budded reminds us that God chooses whom he'll choose. Remember, the, the, the whole problem was that, that everyone wanted to be a priest. And God had chosen the Aaronic guys to be the priests. And they, got, they were in rebellion. This is number 16 and number 17. And uh, so they're going to find out who's, who's there. And they had this testing. And Aaron's rod was a rod that budded. And uh, they said, he's the one. God chose him. And then those other rebellious guys, eventually they didn't repent of that. And they were, the earth opened up and, and swallowed them. Everybody was scared. So that smoke of the, from the golden incense altar wafts over and comes down around the mercy seat, uh, around the Ark of the Covenant, rather, and there it is. And every day, the people of Israel had their high priest, or a priest, going in, confessing sin, looking for mercy, looking for mercy from God. Now, uh, what the altar calls for, when we look at it that way, our text from Jeremiah is very instructive for us here. Uh, the altar calls for confession and repentance. It says those who look to God through this altar for, who, to make confession and repentance, that this will bring forgiveness and healing. Now here's a question for you. What if the confession and the repentance are superficial. What if it's a confession and a repentance that's self-indulgent? It's a good question. Another question goes along with that. What if the assurance of pardon given to such confessions is likewise of the same material? Superficial and self-indulgent. What if that were to be the case? Well, what God says to Jeremiah in the text that we read says, that's exactly the case in the days of Jeremiah. That's exactly what's going on. And God is upset. They're saying, peace, peace, peace to all these wicked people when there is no peace. They're not right with God. They're doing their own thing. They're religious people. They're very sanctimonious and very faithful in the observance of their, but their, their hearts are far from him. And God is upset. 
And the thing that the, the golden altar is to bring is to bring peace with God. We need to know that we need to have peace with God. Read Romans 5, therefore we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. But anyway, we'll, we'll do this. Uh, why is he upset? Here's what it says in the verse just before what we read, Jeremiah 6.13. From the heart, oh no, yeah, there it is. From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely, slash they make lies up, in other words. They're lying to themselves, they're deceptive to themselves and to others. That's God's assessment of that generation in which Jeremiah lived. Uh, that's pretty bad. They're, they're, they're bad to the core. And then we read the part where he says, you know how you can tell that? He says there's no shame. They don't know how to be ashamed. We think shame is a bad thing. Shame can be appropriate if you've done things that are shameful, right? If you say no shame, well, hold on, what have you done? <coughs> What if it's shameful? He said they lost the power to blush, to be caught red-handed and blush because, oh my goodness, I'm undone. But no, they just sin with a high hand. I'll talk about that Tuesday night a little bit. You know, we've, we've done that here consistently in the United States, in Western culture, all these things that are bad, bad, and God says they're bad, we're up front with them. We're going to be bold and proud about them. You know, uh, from sexual things to, to all kinds of different things around. We're, we're glad to do those. We've lost the ability to blush, to feel an appropriate sense of shame. And that's not a good place to be. So God's call to them through Jeremiah is what? Verse 16 says, look to the ancient paths where the good way is. You know, there are lots of folks who don't like things that are old. They want just things that are new. And God tells the people, look to the ancient ways, not just old, but ancient ways, where the good way is and walk in it. Every day on that golden altar of incense, smoke goes up, goes around, and it'll land over there on that covenant box, the Ark of the Covenant. And that shows where the good way is. If you don't know what the good way is, right there. Look in what's contained in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Jesus takes this verse 16 of Jeremiah 6, and he refers it to himself in Matthew 11. Remember that? Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You shall find, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, you shall find rest for your souls. And he's quoting here from Jeremiah 6, 16. He says, I'm the rest. I'm the place to come. I'm the one to do the, to receive that. Uh, that's the promise in Jeremiah. That's the promise that Jesus makes himself. But what do the people say? Here's the bad part. It makes you weep. We will not walk in it. We read it today. We will not walk in it. When a society says that to God, it's pretty bad. Not only that, they say, we will not listen. We 
We won't give it a hearing. We know what we want. We know what we want to hear. And we like what those other guys are saying where they say, peace, peace, peace to our self-indulgent confessions. We don't want this. We won't listen to it. God says there's a consequence. He says, hear. He says, no. That is, hear with your ears and know what? I'm bringing judgment on this people. And it's not a long ways off. It's going to be on you, on this generation. And of course, in Jeremiah's own lifetime, the Babylonian captivity takes place. Jerusalem's destroyed, and the people go off into exile. Therefore, mercy is great, but folk must desire it, must have an honest evaluation of self and of nation. Well, what about Jesus' day itself? Do you remember his judgment before the, G- before the Jewish authorities? We talked a little bit about this last week and the week before, but we want to go back and look at some different aspects of it today just a little bit. Uh, here's what the chief priests asked him. What did they say? Uh, well, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, they wanted to know that because if he said such was the case, they would condemn him. Because no one can say that unless you really are the Son of God, the Messiah. Do you remember what happens next? Here's how Jesus answers them. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, speaking to the high priest in singular, hereafter you, all you guys, all this generation, will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's in Matthew 26. Well, you know what happens. They tear their clothes, they blasphemies on, and they say, away with him. And he goes off to Pilate to be judged. It's the middle of the night. Pilate has to get up. We read in confirmation this morning three times. Pilate says, I find him to be innocent. And yet it turns out that, <clears throat> that the Jews say, look, you can't, you can't let him go free. You can't say he's innocent. Otherwise, you're, you're not a friend of Caesar. They said, oh, well, okay. And he says, remember, he, he wants to wash his hands of the blood of Christ. Listen to what the Jews said there, what they said about themselves. It's a difficult thing to say. It says, his blood, this is the passage from Matthew 27. Nope, the other way. He says, his blood be upon us and our children. That's what they eventually say. This, this guy here that you want to release, his blood be upon us. Don't worry about it being on you. We'll do that. Well, uh, it was a wicked generation in which Jesus lived. We said that last week. Do you remember his words in the Olivet Discourse? This is in Luke 21. He says, you know, they come to him and say, they point out to him the magnificence of the temple. He says, as for the things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one stone upon another which will not be torn down. 
Really? That's what, what he said. What's their question? Well, well, when will this happen? When will this happen? Uh, he says there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Uh, not one stone left on its own. It's going to happen sooner in this generation and the signs will even be in the heavens. That, folks, brings us to Revelation 9, 13 to 21. Uh, the sixth trumpet sounds and a voice from the golden altar, the four horns, speaks. The golden altar which is before God. We've seen this altar before. We saw it before the, some of the other trumpets. And it's where the prayers of his martyrs are. It's where, where God himself is. And from that has come forth these judgments from the mercy seat of all places. From there comes the judgment of God on people who've resisted, rejected, and said no to him. And God has a case against his people, against the Jews, who've insisted that he is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. He is an imposter, and he deserves to be killed. That's what they were intent on, and that's what they accomplished. Uh, well, how do we understand all these things in the rest of Revelation chapter 9 here? Uh, how do we understand the, the things here from the sixth trumpet? Uh, I'm going to suggest some ways to you. Uh, all this happens close to the time of when this book of Revelation was written. I've told you that my understanding is that it was written in the year 65, 66, somewhere in through there. Uh, these things will happen close to that. We, we've done that a number of times. Well, what's this where the Euphrates River is? Euphrates River is on the north side of, of Israel, and it's always been the place from which foreign armies come in and go through the land. They come from the north. And, you know, Israel, the way it is, is going a little between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and that's sort of a passageway all the way through from, from uh, Assyria and Babylon and otherwise down to, 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 uh, to uh, Egypt, down to them. And so their enemies have always come that way. It says there's going to be an army, a foreign army. Be Romans. There'll be some Syrians with it as well. And actually this time in this AD 66 to 70, there'll be Syrians with it as well. But that's what, look for a foreign army, not something in the midst of us. How about 200 million men? Uh, how do we understand that? I had a you read a number of things to get prepared for this. And from the late 1800s, there was a fellow who wrote and said, he did a whole population survey and said that uh, if you get rid of uh, the women, uh, don't count them in, their, in what's in the world, get rid of those who are too old and those who are too young, you have uh, 200 million men. He said, that's what that refers to. All the men on earth are going to come and do that. Uh, more recently, usually what you hear is that well, it's the Chinese, right? The Chinese have a 200 million man standing army. And they're the ones going to come over and come up from the north and show, come on down. I don't think any of those things are accurate. Now, I'm in a minority perhaps, but I don't think those are accurate. I think the, two, the 200 million refers to lots and lots and lots of people. Lots and lots. But all of them are numbered by God. He knows the number. We can't figure it out because there are too many. Now, I'll tell you one of the reasons why is you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So in Psalm 68, 
verse, I got it here somewhere, verse 17. It talks about how the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. And the numbering there is exactly the same as what's in Revelation 9. And it means lots, innumerable, as it were, will come and they'll invade. But God says, I know the number of them. Don't worry. I got this. And then how about the way the, 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 the army is described? All those, uh, you know, the riders had breastplates, the other heads came, uh, heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire, smoke, and brimstone. What does all that refer to? Usually what you hear, what you read, is that those refer to everything from helicopters to tanks to some kind of mobile equipment to stuff like that. I don't think that's accurate either. I think what he's trying to get us to know here, when the people there to know, this is demonic. They're demonic, they're evil, and no matter which way they turn, coming or going, they're bad and they do bad stuff. And these, unlike the ones we saw last week, these demonic forces are allowed to kill people, to kill their bodies. Uh, well, there's another problem that we have here if we read through this text, and these are things that are throughout the, the book and you have to figure out what to do with them. It says, a third of mankind was killed by them. What does that mean? How many would that be? And how would that happen? My understanding is that when it says in the earth here in Revelation, it refers to the land. It's the Greek word's gay. Gay gays is the uh, way you decline that. And uh, the, the way people thought of things, that was the land, that was the place, that was where God was, was the place of Israel. And so the, the earth refers to all that land. And a third of the people in that land will be killed by these forces. Now, two or three weeks ago, I went through and we listed all these different places where there were tens of thousands of people being killed. And uh, that's just the beginning. You read on, you find a whole bunch more get killed. Not all of them. Uh, and so, to me, that helps us understand what's going on here. Uh, now, part of what Jesus had said is that signs would be given to that generation before these things happened. What were those signs? Here's the first and number one sign. Uh, do I have this projected somewhere? I do. In Acts chapter 5. That's, there we go. Uh, the apostolic preaching. Here's what they said in Acts 5. The Jews, temple leaders, accused Peter and John, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's their accusation. Peter and John respond, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. That is, they go back and forth about what this is. You're trying to bring this man's blood on us? Well, yeah, you said it way back when. And you actually did do that. You're the ones who had him crucified and killed. So that's the preaching. That that's, should have been sufficient, and it was for a number of Jews to, to come to Christ. The majority of the early church were Jewish people who were converted, but the mass of people did not. Now, uh, I have to give you some stuff that are signs that you don't find anywhere in the Scriptures. You find them in Josephus who was a contemporary, uh, who lived through this. In fact, he, he was in charge of some of the, the Jewish armies. Remember I told you about him two or three weeks ago? He was born in A.D. 37. 
to a priestly family. His father was a priest in the priestly caste. His father was alive when they condemned Jesus. And his father was alive in AD 70, and he will perish. Josephus' family will perish, not him, will perish in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 66 to 70. Uh, so it, it, it's on that. But here's what Josephus, as he describes the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's some signs he says. Number one, he says there was this occasion where it happened, uh, and he tells exactly when it was, uh, on the 8th of Nisan, at 3 a.m. in the morning, a bright light for half an hour lit up the entire altar and temple area, and no one could explain it. They didn't have electricity, they didn't have things, you know, spotlights, to, they didn't know. And they tried to put a good cast on but he, Josephus says this was a sign, that look out, God's not satisfied with us. Next sign is that during the festival season that, you know, from, begins with uh, Passover all the way down through Pentecost, during the festival season, the east gate of the temple opened on its own accord at midnight. Now, Josephus goes ahead and describes this, this thing, it's huge, huge gate, it's how it's placed and what it is, and it takes 20 men, ordinary to push it open and to push it shut. And all of a sudden at midnight, it opens up on its own. They run and tell, oh, the gate is open, the gate is open. They think, oh my goodness, that means that, that you know, the access to God is open. He said, they've got to get it closed. It, Josephus says, no, that was not what it was. He's looking back at this retrospectively, of course, uh, understanding that. And then he said there was another sign that was there. At the end of the second Passover, <clears throat> what this would be were people who, who weren't clean to participate in the first Passover. A couple of weeks later, they would have another Passover celebration. At this Passover, in the skies above Jerusalem and its environs, we're seeing chariots and their battalions all around, going all over the place. And what does this mean? They saw these things. How do we understand this? And then uh, the next one he lists is at Pentecost, the priests were doing their service, what they had to do in the temple, and they heard a great commotion. And then a commanding voice saying, we are leaving. And that brought some fear into people's lives. Does this mean that God, his angels are leaving the temple, leaving us? And the answer will be yes, that's true. And then he lists one other thing. He says, for a whole year there was a star like a sword and a comet that hung over the city. He said, all these things are happening in the year AD 66, is what Josephus says. And they were a prelude, prelude to great tragedies, horrific events that were pressed into the four years leading up to that time when not one stone will be left on another. The whole thing's raised. Something no one would have thought, R-A-Z-E-D, all things raised and put down. No one would have thought that. Now the question is this, you know what the title of the sermon is. Did they learn anything from this? Did they profit from that at all? And what our text says is that the rest of mankind, the rest of these folks in Israel, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works. Remember what I said the golden altar is for? It's for confession, for repentance, to look for God's mercy and God's favor. They did not repent, just like in Jeremiah's day. They said, no. They said, we will not listen. And they continued to walk and insist on their wickedness. That's why I said we had to focus on the mercy seat to start off with, because that's the way the chapter ends. It ends on this great, horrific note. They did not repent. 
God's judgment's coming. Boom, boom, boom. They still won't repent. This is not the last time we'll see. We'll see later on in, in, in Revelation. They're going to shake their fist at God. Get mad at him because of this when they've not repented. Well, here's the way we want to end. We don't want to end that way. We want to praise God for his mercy. Hallelujah. We need it, right? We need his mercy. We call out to him, Lord, have mercy. And again, you'll see as we pray in the day of prayer and fasting, we pray and confess. Here's things where we have really gone awry. We have messed up. Help us. We need your mercy. Come be gracious to us. We need to repent. Remember they said, we will not walk in it. We will not live out that which you said. We need to walk in that. So, uh, lesson not learned by the Jewish folk. We pray that we will learn that God's mercy is great and we rejoice and give thanks to God for it. Amen.